0: Good afternoon, and welcome to this ISUSA COVID-19 conversations. Uh, this is one of several webinars that we've done in which we, uh, a group of colleagues, gets together, just talks about what's happening with COVID. Today, we're going to talk about sort of the latest update and uh, and and hear a little bit about COVID, but also respiratory social virus and influenza. With me today uh, is Doctor uh, Bonnie Maldonado. Bonnie's a professor of pediatrics at Stanford University and somebody who is also a member of the ACIP and an expert in the area of vaccinology. Uh, also to, with me today is Dr. Michael Sag. Mike is a professor of medicine and infectious disease at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and is a well-known HIV investigator. And later today we'll get also uh, Dr. Peter Chin Hong of the University of California San Francisco will be joining us. Peter is running a little late, but I'm sure he'll join the discussion later on. So I want to start just uh, talking a little bit about what's happening with the with the epidemiology of COVID. What are the what are the things that uh, that that we're seeing, and and do we need to be concerned? You know, this morning, for example, in the uh, in the Washington Post, there was an there was an editorial from uh, from Eric Topol that says the coronavirus is speaking. It's saying it's not done with us, and he talked about how we've let our guard down, and the virus has mutated, and this this new uh, the new dominant virus primarily in the in northeast in new york this xbb.1.5 is is really a highly transmissible virus and it's causing a lot of a lot of havelock infections and some hospitalizations so uh maybe we'll start with you mike tell us a little bit about what this with, what this virus is i'm having trouble just keeping up with the names
1: honestly yeah it's like a alphabet soup with some numbers attached and uh what I think we can take home from this, Carlos, is that these the last year or so has all been Omicron variant. And we've learned about the BAs and their number system. And in fact, the more recent booster that was released in September is a BA 4.5 variant uh, booster that's really important for all of us to get uh, because it the previous vaccine really was good against the original strain and uh, helpful for Delta, but it's it really doesn't quite work as well for Omicron. But the BA45 will protect against that variant to a good degree and even has extension to the XBB. So that's what I think our take-home point. Yet the uptake of the more recent booster has only been about 15% of the U.S. population, despite... It's availability relatively free to everybody um, since September. So it's really important to get that.
2: Let me just add that um, I, I agree with Michael about that, but uh, what we're seeing over time is that um, people, as Eric so, so uh, rightly said, uh, the virus is not done with us, but it seems that we're done with the virus. Um, it is. Uh, there's still a lot of robust data coming out around real world effectiveness and these vaccines are protecting us from severe disease. So remember that huge onslaught we had in 2020 was because we had no immunity. So that immunity is not long lived. And so if we don't continue to get, uh, at least for now, boosters, uh, we're going to continue to be at risk for disease, maybe not as severe for some people, but We'll continue to see a lot of community transmission, and right now our positivity rates around the country are really high. They're over ten percent. So that's just about as high as they've been since December and before. Um, but we're not seeing as many hospitalized individuals. So nobody wants to be sick, and we also know that um, we can talk about this later, uh, Carlos. That long COVID can be associated with these infections as well. So there's nothing to, to sneeze at. No pun intended.
0: So, so Bonnie and Mike you know i think one of the confusions around the vaccines is that these vaccines are not really very good at protecting you from infection right and they they're okay they they have some modest protection against infection but it's not great maybe 30% or so but they're really good at preventing you from getting severe disease and, and and death and and severe complications and i think we haven't been very good at communicating this so people say why should i get vaccinated if i got my vaccines and i still got infected
2: Yeah, that's a great point. I just wrote a a piece about polio. It's my my primary field that I've worked in for many years along with HIV. And that's a perfect example. Uh, We have very few virus, uh, vaccine viruses that provide sterilizing immunity. So you're almost always going to have some degree of infection, even after vaccination, but you won't get sick. And I don't think we've seen that in the literature so much. I think the emphasis, rightly so, on testing for infection has really focused on people saying, look, I still got infected. But the the ability to keep that infection to asymptomatic disease or to, um, you know, less serious disease is critical. But as with polio, what we see with these viruses um, is that if you continue to get infected and your viral load is low, then you're going to be less likely to transmit. So. It also supports uh, the reduction of community transmission. I, I don't think we probably message that very well.
0: Welcome, Peter. So, so, so Mike, uh, you know, one of the questions appearing in the chat is around monoclonal antibodies. We're yes. we losing them. You know, we lost Beptolivimab. Now we're going to lose uh, uh Do you know of anything in the in the pipeline to replace those monoclonals?
1: Yes or no. Um, I know of a couple of, I have some colleagues who have developed a broadly neutralizing antibody that appears really robust against most strains. The problem is they're having trouble finding a pharmaceutical partner to link with. And um, what I've heard uh, is that the the pharmaceutical companies, since, quote, the government's not paying for it directly anymore, uh, don't have much of an appetite for developing a product that's going to potentially... Uh, have a short uh, treatment lifespan because of the variants. And so we have to really come back, maybe at, at the level of the federal government to see how we can encourage this. What I heard was that the a couple of the companies have shown the government, well, here's how you can make this stuff. You have at it. I'm thinking, well, We don't want the government necessarily to get into the pharmaceutical development business. So um, we should find a way to partner, but it really is a huge hit, especially as you mentioned, the loss of Evichel for a lot of uh, immunocompromised people is really scary. And Mm -hmm. the Paxlovid certainly can work, but some people can't take it because of the ritonavir uh, moiety. So I'd love to see us keep developing. I don't think it's a problem developing candidate product, we can do that. It's a question of large scale uh, production and distribution that really pharma is set up to do very well.
2: Yeah, there's also the, the active trials. And um, and Paul and I on a DSMB for some of the active trials. And there are a couple of products out there that are not the ones we've seen now. And they are, to a certain extent, the uh, NIH is underwriting some of the uh, trials themselves. but so I think the problem has been now, of course, uh, changing forces around uh, prevention of severe versus mild disease. And really, these trials were all set up back early on when China's prevent hospitalizations and deaths. So um, those are still ongoing, and they're multinational trials, but they are taking a while to enroll. And traditionally, as you know, Mike, in particular, antivirals are very, very hard to come by. It's just been tough to get, you know, any antiviral drugs or um or products for any any disease, so uh, we really feel like um, the um, active system has been one incentive to getting uh, investigators and countries on board to try to do these studies.
1: I think it's worth So Peter, worth, yeah. 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 Peter ahead,
0: welcome. Sure. Welcome. I wanted to, you know, we talked about packs a little bit, but I wanted to, if you can, <laughs> mention the panoramic study and mention what your interpretation is on that study, you know, because we, again, Paxlovid and and Pervier were developed in primarily tested in in non-vaccinated populations, but we're using them in highly vaccinated populations. And now we're beginning to see data on vaccinated populations. So how are you using these drugs and how do you interpret the data of studies like Panorama?
3: Yeah, so I think that first of all, uh, we aren't using uh, enough Paxlovid as people said, I think some estimates about 20% of those eligible above the age 65 and there are lots of barriers. Uh, But like you mentioned, Paxlovid was initially studied in RCT study in people who are primarily unvaccinated. So whether or not it's generalizable and whether or not you'd have the same uh, bang for the buck, um, I think uh, led others to look at uh, uh, looking at uh, at whether or not what the real world efficacy was. So like you mentioned, uh, you know, if it was 90% uh, in the pure unvaccinated population, about 70, 70% in a sort of like real world setting, uh, it's still giving you um, a lot of benefit, I think, uh, in, in my estimation compared to, depending on who you are. But whether or not it's... Um, uh, you're going to get the same benefit at all age groups. It's one thing, but then again, it's balanced by, you know, looking at the possible effect of Paxlovid on, on long COVID. So I think some people are balancing uh, the effects of preventing hospitalizations with that effect of uh, preventing long COVID. So I think, you know, based on that VA study of around 20 to 25%. So, but that's again, an older population.
1: Yeah. Carlos, if I can interject here that uh, I recently had a bout of uh, COVID and I've been vaccinated and I had uh, previous COVID, Um, but I started Paxlovid within 35 minutes of my positive test and my symptoms lasted 24 hours and they were gone. And then I tested negative uh, after two days of Paxlovid. Now that's anecdotal, but I think the trick is getting people on treatment early. And I don't think I was at high risk, even though I'm older, uh, of being hospitalized. But I had zero uh, lower respiratory symptoms that developed. And again, getting through the uh, illness phase was 180 degrees different than my first experience in March of 2020.
0: Yeah, that's a really important point. I was gonna I was gonna ask you, Mike. So somebody put in the chat. Let's suppose that you had not been boosted and you got COVID when would you recommend the person gets the vaccine?
1: Generally speaking, uh, first of all, I'll say it's not 100% known, but I think uh, based on the biology, I would say within four to six weeks. uh, Bonnie, I don't know, you're the vaccine expert, but that's what I would deduce from what I've read.
2: Yeah, generally, we know that uh, from the original uh, wave uh, that uh, people can get reinfected within 30 days. Um, and CDC generally recommends waiting at least 30 days but between 30 and 60 days is a good time you know if you want to prevent disease I think it's a really great idea um yeah because so you I, know, I, I I've, been,
0: I've been I've been recommending people wait a little longer there's some data from the lab I think from Tony fauci's lab suggesting that you get a better response if you wait 10 to 12 weeks so I've been telling people to wait a little longer
2: depends on the prevalence right so you want to wait long enough to get the <laughs> You know, you don't want to too long and get infected. So it depends on the 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 dynamics of the viral uh, uh, um, transmission at the time. But yeah, absolutely. The longer you wait, the better you are in getting. So within three months, for example, uh, you get a really good response. Although you still get a pretty good response after thirty days.
0: So, uh, so how about remdesivir? Are we using remdesivir at all any anymore? Primarily in the outpatient setting. We're
2: still still using remdesivir, but more, I mean, we're not seeing a lot of inpatients at this point, and those who we're seeing are generally asymptomatic, but we still have that as a backup, especially because we're losing all of our um, other options with, uh, you know, uh, all the other monoclonal being gone, remdesivir is a good backup, but it's not certainly not at the same level as we were using it uh, even, you know, six months ago.
3: I think in the immune-compromised population with a lot of potential drug interactions with Paxlovid, I've seen remdesivir use uh, sort of increase And in a kind of setting would be, okay, the you know immune-compromised individual gets admitted, they don't have a lot of symptomatic disease yet, but they're COVID positive, people are worried that they may get very uh, ill fast enough. They get admitted, they don't look as bad, they get started remdesivir and then they convert it to a three-day period early disease. So, you know, kind of nice for um, uh, drug interactions perspective. And also you have like a seven-day window period from the trials versus five days for Paxlovid, So that's another kind of like if you're in between day five and seven, Remdesivir might be a cop-out uh, where you might still get benefit. Right.
1: We, we've kind of danced around this, but I think it's worth saying explicitly that there really is no available monoclonal antibody for these current Omicron variants. That needs to be clear. So what we've done is we've converted our monoclonal antibody facility, if you will, to giving daily remdesivir for three days to the people at high risk, like the immunocompromised patients who we used to give monoclonal antibody to and they got sick. And I, my personal thought is if you've got an antiviral, use it early, like as early as possible, because that way you can nip it in the bud. And rather than waiting for symptoms to get so bad that they have to go in the hospital. I think that's a reasonable approach, but what we need is an oral version of for desk care.
0: So, a good question that appears here is you know, what's the benefit of Paxlobin in non high risk individuals? I mean, I'm thinking about you know, an otherwise healthy, I talked to somebody today, otherwise healthy, 45 year old individual who's an athlete who got COVID. And my recommendation is that there's no reason to treat this individual, there's no point, there's no benefit. Now this person is saying, does it does treatment prevent long COVID? And I would say the answer to that we don't know, right?
3: Wait a minute. Barney at Stanford. They're doing that RCT, right? I mean, they're doing RCTs. Yeah. Places. So
2: we have we're part of the Recover Trials, and I think UCSF is as
3: well. Um, and we
2: um, uh, started. When we were one of the sites that was doing the um, COVID study too for the prevention of. Uh, to study for the prevention or mitigation of long COVID. You know, these things are going to take a while. Yeah, but that's
0: but that's not treating people on, during the acute event. No. That's treating right. people with, with long COVID. That's a different story.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And it's 15 days of Paxlovid for those individuals. Yeah. Uh, so so another question, my friend David Resnick says, how can regular people get access to Paxlovid within a few hours of positive tests? Well, David, number one, you're not a regular person. You, you have access to a lot of physicians who can call your prescription immediately. And quite frankly, I find it very easy. You, you say you're positive, you call the drugstore, you get the drug. Right now, there's actually more Paxlovid availability. There's more supply than demand in our country. And, and it's, it's a little frustrating. You know, I was reading in Nature this morning, there was an article in Nature this morning saying that it's actually less than 20% of cases are getting Paxlovid, Peter, of people that actually should be on drugs. So we're really not using it, and the U.K. is even less. The U.K. is less than less than five percent. So we got to be doing better with that.
3: Well,
2: one of the issues, of course, and this will be continue to be a problem, is the federal dollars to really support a lot of the dissemination of information really dried up, um, and was really not even available for things like tax COVID. So it, we ran into that um, locally and nationally. We were trying to support education, and there's just no way that the federal government can provide funds to, you know, do even public service announcements. So it's been hard to embed the message of Paxlova use to the general public or even to physicians. I walked in uh, last Christmas during, this is during Delta, so it was really even more infuriating. I walked into my uh, pharmacy locally and the pharmacist was on the phone telling the patient oh, you know, the doctors keep prescribing this Paxlova, but I don't think you should take it. (laughs) I would, and I, that was, I was furious. First of all, going against the medical advice, and secondly, you know, really belittling, belittling the use of Paxlovid. so this is during the interval between Delta and Omicron, so it really uh, shows you, and we're in an area where I think this information generally doesn't happen, so I, I brought it up, and the person was really recalcitrant. so I, I feel like this, are the, this is, again, anecdotal, but I think these are the kinds of things that we are facing, assuming the will even try to um, prescribe
0: it. So can we talk about Paxlovid rebound? Somebody uh, writes in the chat, says, we're seeing a lot of symptomatic rebound with Paxlovid, and this is making us less eager to give it.
1: It happens. Um, I don't know that there's a firm epidemiologic number, but what I've been reading is about 15%. I think a lot of it depends on when it was administered. If it was given very early, perhaps there's more of a likelihood, I don't know. But um, it's not a reason not to give the medicine you get huge benefit. And the rebound, while it is happening, and yes, people get some symptoms, number one, to my knowledge, there's not been a single hospitalization from Paxlovid rebound that's ever been reported. And so it's usually a mild relapse, and it only lasts about uh, a couple days. And yes, the test can convert back to positive. Nobody knows whether that means it's transmissible. Again, probably is. I think I'd isolate the person while they're having their symptoms but that's certainly not a reason not to give the medicine. Now let me let me ask you uh
0: what are you doing with your rebounds are you treating them like Tony did you 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 treat them again?
1: I have not. Neither am I. Okay. <laughs> I mean I don't know how long and for Yeah, we don't
2: have an indication. And
1: I don't have a clue of what to call it if they rebound a second time, a rebound rebound.
2: Well, now, let's me let
1: be, be real clear you look that at I don't have
2: some of the data around Longer-term follow-up of individuals on and off of Paxlovid, you're still going to see rebound in the patients who didn't get Paxlovid at all. So it's not yeah. clear that this is part of the natural history of the virus either. Yeah,
3: and that's, why, that's why, and that's why People I don't call like it COVID, COVID rebound, not Paxlovid rebound. I'm, I'm sorry, like
2: absolutely, COVID, yeah, COVID, rebound.
3: Yeah, COVID sorry.
0: rebound. Sorry. So, so how about going longer with therapy, Peter? This I mean, it, I think.
3: Yeah, I think I'd probably want to wait a little while. I know that people have done it. Actually, I know colleagues have done it informally. Um, They're a little bit worried. They're immune compromised. Uh, Their symptoms were continuing, but uh, it's not something I would normally do. Um, And like I agree with Mike, I haven't seen a single person got rebound where they've gotten worse symptoms. And actually, it's just like mild and it went away eventually and the second thing I would say is that um, uh, you know with with rebound there are people who continue to check their virus and I would definitely not check anything unless you definitely had worsened symptoms after you got better because like in the case of President Biden and Jill Biden nothing was happening and people were just checking them over and over again
1: Yeah. yeah so Carlos I think it might be worth all of us just hitting the pause button and pulling back to the big picture, imagine the world if we didn't have an antiviral to give. I mean, we'd all be clamoring for one. So we actually have one, right? You're talking, but you're talking about you're talking about most
0: of the world, Mike, and I think yeah. you have to emphasize that,
1: right? And and so we do have something. We should try to use it and uh, understand that there's limitations. The second point is that those of us who listen to the very early days of AIDS, we didn't. We had AZT available. We really weren't sure how to use it properly. For several years after, remember we were giving two to three hundred milligrams every four hours, and people waking up. So we still have a lot more to learn about the best use of Paxlovid with a longer period, and hopefully newer drugs will come along that will take its place without the ritonavir.
0: So, so question that's coming up: People are saying, "Well, you know, I got my, I got my my bivalent booster back in in September. When do I get my next vaccine?" Because you know the question is is a little deeper is What's the durability of the vaccine, right?
1: Oops, we lost Vani. She's probably the best person to answer that too. Um, I'll start, but I think the answer obviously is not known. we're gonna have to follow the population of people out to see how long the immunity lasts. Hopefully we can get to an annual renewal of this and it's us versus the virus. And as Eric Topol said, This virus is constantly mutating, and it's coming back. Um, So I don't know. So, Lana, you're back. We're hoping that you could answer the duration of the of the new booster.
2: Yeah. So we don't really have a good information. The CDC's been trying to track back real world effectiveness, and it looks like the durability um, really depends on the wave and how many you know and how old you are as well. But it seems like. A good three to six month period is when you seem to get the best response. You know, I'm going to go back to what Kathy Newsell said many years ago. I, I love her um, quote that she used. We were talking about rotavirus vaccines and they worked incredibly well in the US, but they didn't work so well in the developing settings. And somebody asked her, Well, what is it, the glass half full or glass half empty situation? And she said, I don't look at it that way. I look and see how big the glass is. So you know, look at the malaria vaccine, 39% effective. And I think, you know, again, if you said, Mike, let's step back for a bit. 39% isn't a hundred percent, but it's not zero either. The entire world is thirty-nine percent is pretty darn good. So I would say if you have a three to six month window where you can be protected, I would go for that. And then the question is, when are we going to get our boosters? So this coming year. I know uh, the FDA has a meeting coming up at the end of this month where they're going to talk about their strategy uh, with the Verpack uh, advisory group. So the question will be then, um, should we continue down this path? At this point, I would say we have to. We don't have a seasonality established yet for this virus. We know that uh, vaccinated and boosted people absolutely do better than unvaccinated people or people who haven't had a booster. It's, it's just the data to show that. And while people who are vaccinated and boosted can get infected, the risk is at least two to 10 times lower for them. So, and that's just a section. Now, if you look at other more severe outcomes, again, you have to take into account risk stratification, but it's still a pretty good deal to get vaccinated. And the question will be um, it will convince the other 85% of people out there to get the booster then we'll have to wait the fall probably to see what the next variant is. And that's going to be a real challenge because we have no idea what's going to be around. Around variants, we talked about that earlier. I think one of the good things here is that we haven't digressed too much from Omicron. It's still, it's still basically the Omicron virus. It's a little more uh, able to, it finds it better, it's more transmissible than the original Omicron, but we don't see a new uh, completely um, antigenic shift like we did with Omicron from Delta. And I'm hoping that we can keep that in mind. But um, uh, the other problem, of course, is I'll get off my soapbox then, is um, who's going to pay for all of these new vaccines? Because you know, this year we're going to have start, we're going to see more, more charges, not for the vaccine, but for administrative charges. And as a pediatrician, I can tell you that administrative charges really. Are what sink the most practices and being able to offer even general vaccinations for children. So the financing and all of that needs to be kept in mind, especially during this year when we're not going to have an easy time sailing anything through Congress.
0: Yeah, well, uh, Mike, let's move on to 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 flu. What are you seeing in flu?
1: It's steady. It's coming down some. It's still there, but it stopped them at the peak levels that we had s- seen. Uh, like in the early part of uh, 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 December. Uh, it's still around. Uh, we're not seeing as many hospitalizations as we had feared. Uh, it's still lurking, uh, of course, so we need to keep an eye on it. But that's uh, what I'm seeing in the national data, and, and it's uh, reality tested here in at least my neck of the woods. I don't know what you guys are seeing.
0: Yeah, we're also seeing the same thing. So, so my, my question to you, Peter is you know, we were concerned about a tridemic. But but is there is that happening? And there's a lot of a lot of argument around what people call viral interference. Can you can you fill us in what viral interference is?
3: Yeah, So, I mean, there's this whole issue about um, the idea that once a virus sets up shop, that it repels the other virus because there's only room on the bus for one. Um, You know, whether or not I mean, there are so many other confounding factors as to why we didn't get multiple uh, or three viruses in the past few seasons compared to this year that I didn't necessarily uh, subscribe to it fully. I mean, I think it's really intriguing. Um, but I would worry about uh, influenza. It's always a dark horse because if you look at last year, for example, when we didn't have a high season, the tail was really long into early summer. And in other countries, like in South America, I think they had a very, like a second... Surge of influenza. So influenza is always something I'm worried about in the background. Um, I am, wor- you know, happy that RSV and you know, a wait for body to function. This is is definitely sort of winding down, and there is not not a lot of like uh, serious as serious disease with reinfection in RSV. So that's kind of what I think about with with flu and this idea, of, um, you know, viral interference. Although it is an intriguing idea that. You know, but I think what what I've seen and put in people before is not a lot of people getting infected at the same time, but they get sequentially infected. So, like, I knew this person who got COVID first, and then they got RSV, and then they got influenza. So it's like one after the other, but not at the same time. Absolutely. Yeah.
2: yeah so, Carlos, sorry. Is my is my audio better? Sorry about that. Um, just they just reorganized my office here. So. Yes. A um, okay. So. There is a paper from, let's see, 2018 or 2017. This was a Princeton uh, viral epidemiologist who did some work looking at very large data sets around respiratory viruses across the entire U.S. population claims data. And they did see, what they found was that certain viruses tended to appear or disappear immediately before or after others. So they implicated that there might be some impact of one virus on another, but there's no d- direct evidence. I do think that there could be something there, but again, it's not something that we know about for sure. Um, what we have seen with flu, for example, this year compared to other years is that um, it started about eight weeks early. So it, I think it sense that it's gonna end a little early, but it's not gonna go away, I don't think all the way through. You know, We tend to see flu last until March or so, Across the country, so the, hopefully the the numbers are coming down a bit, but they're certainly not down at the you know down to a baseline. And what we saw after the 2009 uh, H1N1 pand- flu pandemic was that um, the season started in April that year, so it was very strange. They had the the 2008 season; it ended, and then the 2009 really didn't happen. It peaked out around April, came down in, in September, and there was no season in 2009 to 10. And then slowly, it started to ramp up again. So I was waiting to see what might happen with COVID. But as I said before, we we don't have any seasonality yet to predict with COVID. But with flu, it does tend to rebound pretty quickly. Now, of course, the whole world didn't mask after the influenza pandemic. So I think that shows you how transmissible COVID is relative to flu and RSV and the others. Because I think we were safe against those because a lot of the mitigation worked against less transmissible viruses. So this year, I think we're going to start to see normal, whatever normal means, we're going to start to see regular patterns come back. Um, and this year, of course, is primarily an H3N2 year, so tends to be a little more severe.
0: So so how about this concept of immunity death?
2: Yeah, um, I, I don't really understand that term very well. Um, I think We, you know, despite, you know, with all of our AI information, we should be able to figure this out. That has been the biggest question plaguing um, academic influenza researchers for a long time. We have so much data on serologic responses by age cohort, et cetera. It's pretty clear by now that people who have been exposed to a particular isolate, so an H1 and N1, for example, tend to do better with subsequent um, mutations that happen over the course of time. And, and age groups that have never seen a particular isolate tend to do worse. So um, the question then is, if you haven't seen it every year, but you had exposure, say, three or four years ago, how how much in debt are you compared to somebody who's never seen that virus? And I would say that there's probably going to be a differential. That is, people who've been exposed before to this particular serotype or something like it are going to be doing better than, say, uh, others who never got infected. So um, it would be really nice to be able to build algorithms to understand that better, but we just haven't gotten the AI um, ability to really predict our pandemics any better than we, than we are now. We should we should be able to do a better job.
3: But some people use the term immunity debt to say that your immune system isn't working quite as well right now because of the masking. So I think you know it's important um, to know what people mean when they use yeah. that term because it's all over the place and it's being used by a lot of people to uh, see why masking and all the precautions we did were wrong. Uh, so in it all right. depends on the yeah. use of the term. It can that's be weaponized. A,
2: that's a really great idea. I hadn't even thought about that actually. So here's the issue too. Um, we went through this with varicella zoster vaccines. Um, so when we first started vaccinating children against uh, chickenpox in 1995, um, the rates of, uh, of wild type zoster chickenpox went down dramatically. And then about um, seven or eight years later, we started to see small outbreaks again. And this was a question that Ann Arvin and I discussed. Ann Arvin was uh, here at Stanford, is here at Stanford, and was one of the people who was very involved with developing the Elkimer, uh vaccine, varicella uh, vaccine. And I asked, we we discussed this issue around if your T cells aren't primed by continued viral circulation, what happens to your immunity? And what we saw was after about seven or eight years, there was evidence that people were, children were starting to have. Uh, low-level outbreaks, but the disease was less severe, there were less lesions, they weren't as sick, um, but then they developed a second, they gave, started giving kids a second dose of varicella vaccine, and I have, not to date, that's been, you know, over 20 years now, almost 20 years now, we haven't seen a second white wave, so it appears that you do need to have T cell boosts. Um, by the way, that's another theory around monkey talk, which I don't think we're going to talk about today, but I heard this theory uh, from our work with the White House uh, Task Force that people are suggesting that the, dis- the uh, discontinuation of smallpox vaccine in 1977 may have led to cohorts of individuals who didn't have sustained immunity against orthopox viruses. So with um, reduced immunity over time, you still have some immunity. We've seen that, but maybe not enough to really prevent circulation of those other viruses like monkeypox, and perhaps that is leading to cross uh, viral uh, circulation at low levels, but then leading to the ability of you know these uh, super spreader events to happen. So we don't. The bottom line is we really don't. Uh, one of the fascinating things about viruses and immunity is we we don't understand them well enough to think you know we're, we 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 don't have the way to eradicate these diseases, and as long as we don't eradicate them, they have. They are very tricky about figuring ways to come back. And our T-cells very clearly do need boosts for certain viruses. Maybe all of them. I don't know. Mike, maybe you know.
0: So, so Peter, can you help us put, you know, a lot of people are, have fear of, of getting a COVID vaccine nowadays because they're concerned about cardiac complications. Can you help us? What are you telling patients? How do you communicate about cardiac risk of vaccination?
3: Well, I, I would say, first of all, that uh, in the vaccine, first of all, the, the big 30,000 foot view is you get much more cardiac risk by getting COVID than the vaccine. And then amongst of vaccine uh, cardiac risk is tracks with um, testosterone and early, late adolescence, uh, early adulthood and males primarily. They haven't uh, had a lot of serious disease uh, and they tend to generally uh, get better pretty soon uh, and, and, you know, more after at the second dose rather than subsequent doses. So that's basically kind of the bottom line with uh, cardiac complications. And, um, you know, uh, you, so I started from there and, you know, we, we talk about, you know, I, I ask people what their concerns are and, and we go back and forth, but those are some of my talking points.
2: So another talking point is, um, I think around dispelling what people see on TikTok and other places, which is just completely off base. You know, every single person who, you know, dies died in the last year, you immediately started to see trends of, oh, the person died from the vaccine. It's yeah. To the point where publicists are actually saying they didn't die from the vaccine. So, you know, I think we need to do, and I think we need to do again around communication and messaging. We just need to message better. There's been a horrible, horrible um, narrative around the NFL, which I just think is so exploitative and horrible to take advantage of somebody's terrible experience to blame things like this on the vaccines. Some of the things that are being said are just awful. And I think we can do a really good job maybe of, when we talk to people, the first thing you say, you know, here's here's what we know and here's uh, what are you hearing? Because I think what Peter Uh does, you know, is just, reassuring people and making them understand that, you know, even though there's a risk, what's being uh, put out in media is completely irresponsible and untrue.
1: Yeah, I was going to bring that up. I mean, this Tamar Hamlin story is, is a tragedy. It's a one in a five million chance of getting that hit right at the time of the of the depolarization that caused the cardiac event. But it's amazing, just immediately the social media went, oh, that's a COVID vaccine. And they don't even know if he had a COVID vaccine. They're already jumping on it. I don't know if he did or he didn't, but it's it just, it's out of control, the misinformation. I think, so the Do you, oh, you remember
2: that? sorry, I just wanted, do you remember that journalist who was covering the World Cup and he yeah. died? I, I heard from some of uh, colleagues who work with his wife, who's a physician, who said that um, she's getting harassed harassed by anti-vaccine groups because of, I don't know what, because what did she do? Maybe because she allowed him to get vaccinated, but to add insult to injury, somebody's lost their their closest loved one and now they're being harassed. So I think we need to address this issue in other ways. Um, It's not just about COVID, it's about all vaccines now and other therapeutics. We have um, parents who aren't allowing their children to get vitamin K injections at birth, and that's a good way to, you know, allow your child to have a horrible bleeding diathesis. So the the public health, the trust in public health and science has just really taken a hit in the last three years. Sorry, Peter, go ahead.
3: Oh, no, I was just going to bring up the Grant Wall and Cillian Gooder, um, you know, op-ed she wrote in New York Times too, and um, people were so mean to her, and she wrote about this, and said it was karma because she was so pro-vaccine and what they, you know, and he had died of an aortic aneurysm that it was a complication of the vaccine. And that was really, uh, you know, again, adding insult to injury, as you said. And I think while infectious disease docs and people in the field really breathed a sigh of collective relief when she had, you know, she went through that methodical uh, process of getting an autopsy in New York just because of all this uh, online heat she was getting.
0: So let's talk a little bit about China. What 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 do you see happening in China? What do you know? <clears throat>
2: <laughs> well, it's, uh, it, it's hard to know, but go ahead. I mean, I, there, there's a lot of derivative data, but we don't have any direct data. Go ahead, Mike, sorry.
1: Yeah, I'm just saying they went 180 degrees. So for many months they had like a zero tolerance program, which did keep the epidemic under control, right? They didn't have many cases. And then they went right wide open. And now there's a projected, I heard uh, today, that they're going to have a projected 800 million cases. That's like a number I can't even comprehend. Um, but they're allowing flights in and out. And the U.S. is requiring testing of people flying back from China to the U.S., That's all well and good. They're going to struggle for a while. Their hospitals are stretched, and uh, I'm just surprised that they didn't have a massive vaccine program that was implemented prior to their change in policy. It's hard to understand, at least to me.
2: Yeah, so that I think the reasons, as you all probably know this, you know, going from the zero COVID to opening, flinging open the doors, I think was in response to political instability. And, the, you know, the government is very careful about that. But as you said, it, as happened um, in Hong Kong, you know, you want to be ready with vaccination. And so there were a couple of thoughts because we don't really know the data very well for China, but it appears that not enough vaccination happened. They did do a very good job, apparently. Of vaccinating older individuals, so they did have good uptake in older people, but they didn't. Uh, they use their. They don't use outside vaccines, so we don't really know the efficacy or effectiveness of the Chinese vaccines at this point. And they're not letting anybody have access um, to outside vaccines. So there's a lot of information that we don't understand. But you know, people, um, what I worry about is people are going to use that as an example. Of why should we do anything? Uh, in the U.S., for example, but we have vaccinated uh, people here, and we're seeing that we're not, we are um, able to tamp down the resurgence or the, re- re, um, the lowered immunity over time after vaccines and boosters, because we're not seeing this huge surge of deaths or hospitalizations. We're seeing more infections, but not not the type of dramatic disease that China is seeing. So I think um, that speaks to the ability of a country to Put together a full program. Now, the other last thing is CDC is um, recommending that rather than doing uh, testing of people, uh, because you can miss a lot of people as they get on planes or off planes, is to do sewage testing of planes. Um, now, how you would implement that, I think you could do it on a pretty quick basis. We do it, we do a Bay or San Francisco Bay Area wide testing here at Stanford of sewage, and it's a pretty real time way to look and see. So you could take a sewage from the plane and then for example be able to see if that plane has individuals now it could wind up holding people up if there's you know if you tested people and they were all negative and then you found a positive sewage uh, test then you'd have to go back and retest people on the plane but but um the just testing people before they come into the country is not going to stop the virus from circulating
0: yeah we, uh, we we learned that a long time ago right <laughs>
3: I saw uh, some data showing that 95% of planes, when they did a, a small sample, were positive for COVID in wastewater. So it's like looking, focusing on China, probably wouldn't do much for preventing COVID from coming in, although one of the arguments is bad sort of variants. like yeah,
1: things. It was actually 98%, it were 28 of 29 planes <laughs> yeah. that had their <laughs> wastewater tested recently in the US on domestic flights were positive for COVID. So I'd still wear my mask on the plane. So that's yep. not a
3: bad idea. Um, one other interesting thing about the China situation is that uh people may know this, but they recently had emergency use authorization for nasal uh vaccine that's meant to be an adjunctive vaccine. It was from a collaborate. I think there are a couple out there, but the main one is this collaboration between University of Hong Kong and like Tan Sino or something. And it looked really good in the studies, you know, like um. 80 above 80 percent uh in terms of hospitalization i believe but many people are looking at that and you know i think there are 100 compounds around the world where could you use that as an adjunct if you really want to prevent disruption by uh super infection so you know whether or not they're going to deploy that or not um but regardless of all well, the reports that people are reading about prematuriums and they let in all these ap reporters who like went around these hospitals and saw um Lots of crowded um, situations.
0: So Bonnie, kids are going back to school. What are you telling parents? What are you saying?
3: Yeah, uh,
2: well, we're um, trying to get people to remember that every respiratory virus season can can be a risk no matter what. And we're used to this in pediatrics. So we've already taught our kids. In fact, our kids teach us about respiratory etiquette. I remember when my kids were growing up, they came home and taught us how to pop into our sleeves. So, um, and how to, you know, so that's something that we need to continue to do. I think it's too late to try to build mask mandates back into the, uh, the, the uh, conventional wisdom. People are done with that. Um, and maybe at this point, you know, what Mike said at the very beginning around poor uptake of vaccines and boosters is really where we need to go back. And we just can't get people to think about it that way. We have seen a good, uh, upt- reasonably good uptake this year of flu vaccines among adults and even children, although the rates in children have dropped off a bit since last year. So uh, we need to keep that messaging going that vaccines are still so helpful. Now for all the other diseases um, that for which you don't have um, vaccines, you're just, we're just going to have to make sure that um, people stay home when they're sick, that everybody that goes to school, especially teachers and staff are vaccinated against flu and COVID. And if children can be, they should be vaccinated as well. Um, But I think the masking is gonna be tough. The other easy thing that I think always comes up at these discussions is ventilation. I think Carlos, you're the one who talks about this most, but ventilation I think is really important. And um, I think most of the schools hopefully have gotten to that point. And then we can talk about RSV if we have time later, but there's a lot of really exciting developments in the RSV world that I think could really put a big dent in our uh, in our hospitalizations of children. It, you know, RSV is the second most common hospitalization of kids under five. Um, and actually, there are more hospitalizations from RSV in adults over 60 than there are in kids. So still a huge, uh, over 100,000 people are hospitalized every year, over 60 from RSV. So we have a lot of... Um, this year, I'm hoping there might be uh, a vaccine for pregnant women, a vaccine for the elderly. And I guess I count myself in that uh, in that uh, group, although I'm not gonna tell you how old I am. Uh, but um, there also is a long-acting monoclonal that just got filed for a BLA through uh, map for FDA approval. So we could see um, major reductions in, in uh, morbidity and mortality in the coming year.
0: Yeah, the RSV has some really interesting things happening. So, uh, so what are you doing in your personal life? Well,
3: just you... went,
2: I just went. I I just went. To, I took. a, have been traveling a lot. I went to the Sun Bowl. <laughs> uh, we were on planes uh, and trains and automobiles, and I I wore my mask on the flight. Um, I you know washed my hands. I didn't you know sterilize the environment as I used to, but um, and uh, we we did fine. Um, I tested when I was going to go to meet with a lot of other people in close quarters, and it, to the extent possible, I don't wear my mask. For example, if I'm going to go like to Home Depot to get sandbags so that our house doesn't flood um, this week with all the rain, um, because it's a big open air area and I'm not going to be sitting close to anybody. But if I'm in a close close environment, I've been uh, wearing my mask at least. You know, in some of these closer. Conferences. I went to the a global health conference in Miami, and everybody was masked for the whole meeting. Um, this was just a month ago. Um, but I think as things open up a bit more, and I was more worried about who. Ours, what, what kind of
0: mask? What kind of mask are you using when you go?
2: Um, I can, I mean, a surgical mask is fine. i I do use N95s, but some but a surgical mask actually isn't so bad either. Depends on where you're going to be. I mean, at the hospital. Here we're still just using the N95, the, the regular surgical masks, unless you're seeing, uh, yeah, if you're in clinic or you're in a hospital room, we many of us will still wear the n 95s But if just walking around and uh, surgical is fine. I don't know what the others are doing, Mike and Peter. What you guys are doing?
1: Well, I think we're going to be living with this for a long time. Unfortunately, uh, as Eric Topol said, this virus isn't done with us. And uh, so we're gonna have, to, we should get on with our lives, but monitor the situation when there's a spike, like we're kind of going through now, or at least it's an increase after the holidays, go back to masking, masking works. And, uh, and there's a recent study um, of, of surgical masks versus N95 that on the surface showed absolutely no difference. Uh, but the problem is Paul Saxton had a wonderful blog uh, very well reasoned and, and really great logic uh, that basically showed that despite the fact that the randomized trial showed no difference, um, there were very few transmissions within the hospital setting, that most of the pickup of these cases was in the community. And so if people aren't wearing their masks in the community, then you can do whatever you want to in the hospital, um, but you're going to be living in a world where COVID is there. I think uh, one of the participants just said, "I'm masking a lot, and I haven't had COVID." Yes, that's correct. And I think we should be masking more uh, as these outbreaks happen. You can relax, maybe a little bit when the numbers come down, but that's what I've been masking in in crowded areas, like you were saying, Bonnie.
0: Now, how about what you know? Recently, Shay came out with a statement that you know that I. I support that there's no need to do asymptomatic testing uh, in hospitals.
3: What are your hospitals doing? We we stopped uh, testing asymptomatic uh, individuals at UCSF.
2: So do we. We, you know, there was a, I think uh, we started asymptomatic testing actually way back because of pressure from healthcare providers primarily. I think they were really worried, especially those that were generating aerosol procedures, et cetera. Um, and because of the safety issue and we didn't really understand, we did institute it, then what happened is because we have two separate hospitals, a children's hospital and an adult, uh, we had to harmonize because the services were coming from one hospital to another, and nothing undermines faith than seeing the hospitals have two different policies. So we really aligned and decided to do testing of everybody. Uh, but it's really hard to peel that back without scaring people, although, at this point, we've really uh, been able to engage our workers, but well, we would have done it, you know, six months earlier, but it just took us a while to educate the healthcare personnel. That's, that was really the group that was most worried, I think. I don't know what you all thought.
1: One of the audience members just said that they were shocked at taking their mom to the, a cancer center that had relaxed their mask mandate. I think we still should be wearing masks in yeah. the hospital. Yeah, all sorry. the healthcare workers. Yeah, no question. That that's that's just a
0: no-brainer right now. Yeah, no
2: question. You know, it's
0: it's interesting. For for many years, uh, we would wear masks during influenza season when we went into the leukemia wards, right? Because of the yeah. risk of influenza. Mm-hmm. I think I think after COVID, it's a little bit like how we went to universal precautions for HIV. We you know you and I, Mike, when we drew blood as interns, didn't have to wear we didn't wear gloves. And then you know all of a sudden, universal precautions appeared, and we started wearing gloves. And that's now. Part of the standard, right? So I think masking is becoming, it will become part of the standard of valuing a patient.
2: Honestly, that was what I always hoped for when I was before COVID. I thought, I wish we could mask everybody when they come in because people want to see their family members. They're not going to tell you. And they also tend to underplay. Well, it's just a scratch in the back of my throat. But if we ever saw a nosocomial transmissions of, say, flu or RSV or something else, you could almost always, I would say 90% of the time, plus you would find the source. So, um, and those are people who were just, you know, either early on, uh, just feeling early symptoms and then got sick the next day. And I think masking would be such a, I I do think that masking is so much more important than asymptomatic testing. It is gonna be the way we're gonna keep people healthy. Remember at the beginning of the pandemic, that's how we tracked how well we were doing. And I know that like with the other, all of you here, we just did not see transmissions happening in the hospital, despite everything we were doing, because we were masking, and uh, you know, some people even with N95s, uh, were, well, with surgicals, were doing just as well as long as they weren't doing aerosol generating procedures. So, so, I think so, uh, it's a good good way to go.
0: So, a couple of minutes left. Uh, you know, it's, it's always hard to look at the future, but what do you see in the next uh, three to six months, Mike?
1: I think you need to unmute Mike. I'm sorry, I missed the question. I was, looking, I was scrolling through the Q&A. What, what was the question?
0: So the question is, you know, it's hard to look into the future, but what do you see in the next three to six months?
1: Yeah, I think more of the same. I, I think the variants will continue to emerge. Um, I think we will probably have a lull now that the holidays have passed. People got together without masks. It's going to be predictable every year. But I think we'll have a decent spring. I'm just hopeful that people at risk will get their vaccinations and uh, that that number will pick up from 15% to 40 or 50% of uh, uptake. But I I think we're going to be living with this for a while and it's a new normal. Peter?
3: Uh, I think that uh, COVID will continue a little bit, uh, but not at the levels of the last two years, kind of hovering around maybe 400 to 500 deaths a year, which which is still way too much. Given pax and all that stuff. I think influenza will have a slow burn. We may have a long tail of influenza. Um, but um, I think I agree with Mike that we will have probably a decent spring, early summer, probably several months where things will be a little bit quiet, hopefully. How about you, Bonnie?
2: Yeah, I agree. I think uh, I- I'm just crossing my fingers that we don't see another weird Omicron-like uh, shift happen because that would throw everything into disruption. And I'm worried that China could do that, um, we'll see. Um, at this point, we're just still seeing Omicron's coming out, which we can work with. But I, I do think we're gonna see this slow, low burn that we're seeing now. We really haven't lost cases or deaths at this point, but they're, they're in a very high risk group. So, and I agree that it would be nice to be optimistic about vaccines. Unfortunately, I see the opposite happening. Uh, we've had measles outbreaks, we've had a polio case, I think, if anything, I'm worried more about people's uptake of other things, so they're just so burned out. But, um, but let's just hope for a nice spring and summer where people can relax again, because we're getting back into the real, you know, back into a new, as you said, a new normal.
0: So, what do you think are the odds that we will see uh, the emergence of a more lethal uh, strain of COVID?
2: I don't think it'll happen now. I think it could happen down the line. I mean, coronaviruses keep doing this to us every few years. We don't really know where that Omicron came from, so we're hoping that, I'm hoping that we won't see something like that happen. That was such an anomaly. It's hard to know whether that would happen again. I, I would almost call it a black swan event, but then I think I'm uh, dooming us to, to having another one happen, but that was a very unusual situation. It's so distinct from the other viruses. Uh, I, I just don't see it happening, but but you know, again, we were waiting with bated breath to see and I think the other thing is surveillance is going to be critical. It's it's by the way, the Australia outbreak really helped us predict exactly what was going to happen this year. Exactly. So we just need to keep doing surveillance. And we cannot let go of that. It's the only way we're going to be able to know what might be coming.
0: But I, yeah. my, I think yeah. we also do a much better job vaccinating those that are over the age of 60, over the age of 65. I think our yes. booster, there was a very interesting, there was a very interesting paper in, in JAMA, uh, think JAMA Health Policy or JAMA Internal Medicine, I can't remember this past week, in which they saw that in nursing homes, if you didn't vaccinate the staff, you 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 didn't protect the, the employees. So mm-hmm. again, it talks about the importance of also vaccinating the staff in those high-risk facilities, right?
1: So yeah. that time this together a little bit real quickly, Car- uh, Carlos, that, you know, it's hard to predict the future for sure, but I think we have a consensus here about hopefully it's going to get a little lower, maybe not. Turn more virulent, but I know pretty confidently that we're going to see an investigation out of Congress, uh, the House, to see where the virus came from. There's going to be an origin of COVID, uh, SARS-CoV-2. I think the uh, the leadership is going to be pushing for that.
0: Yeah, and I, and I would say, Mike, as, as you know, I don't necessarily agree with that, but at the same time, I would say that I'm I'm really. Frustrated with the lack of transparency of China, even right now,
2: yep. the lack of
0: transparency of China is not—it's not, not hurt—it's hurting everybody. And I think the only way to really fight a pandemic is with greater transparency. So one of the things that I've said, and I'll say it over again, is that more than testing passengers before they get on planes, we need more transparency and we need greater diplomacy because diplomacy, science, scientific diplomacy is clearly important in trying to prevent uh, more outbreaks. Couldn't agree more. That's right.
3: Well said, Carlos.
0: Well, thanks everybody, and uh, and I really appreciate the audience, and I appreciate our participants. Uh, you can the to be upcoming on the band these this this webinars are posted. Somebody said are they posted? Somebody on Twitter please post them. Yeah, they are posted, and you you know if you're interested in, in in viewing them, you can go to the isusa.org website and find them there. Thank you very much for your presence.
1: Thank you all. Yeah, I think that went well. Thank you. Yeah, thank
2: thank you. you. Lots of great comments. Oh, good,
1: good to see you again. Yeah.
2: Yeah. You too. I hope everyone had a good holiday.
1: Yeah. <sighs>
2: Thanks, Mike.
1: Okay, DJ. Thank you, Jose. Well done. I don't know. I, I I forgot to bring my microphone down here, so that may have been a problem with the echo. I'll try no. to remember that. Thank you. Okay. Okay.
2: All bye right. Bye. 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 Thanks, Jose.